Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Jesus, be with us and help us. Hold our hands as we read your word. Speak to us. Open our ears. Make our hearts soft. So that we could know something about the love of God and the power of the gospel. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Have a seat, gang. You know the protagonist in Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables, criminal named Jean Valjean, 19 years he spends in a French galley prison. When he's released, he's homeless, but he's taken in by the local bishop. The bishop's name, Monsignor Bienvenue. You could translate that as Bishop Welcome. He lives up to his name welcomes Valjean into his home. And Valjean, if you know the story, repays the bishop by stealing his silver, his forks and his plates and his knives, puts them in a bag, leaps over the fence in the backyard and goes on the run. Next day, Valjean's apprehended by the French gendarmes and they bring him back to the bishop so that Valjean can be charged with theft. But when the gendarmes arrive, the bishop's palace with Valjean and irons and the stolen silver in tow, something unexpected happens. And I'll let Hugo tell the story in his own words. There you are, exclaimed the bishop looking at Valjean. I'm glad to see you. How about this? I gave you the candlesticks, too, which are silver like the rest, for which you could certainly get 200 francs. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and your spoons? Jean Valjean opened his eyes wide, and he stared at the venerable bishop with an expression which no human tongue could render an account of. Monsignor, said the brigadier of the gendarmes, so what this man said is true. We came across him. He was walking like a man who was on the run. We stopped him to look into the matter, and he had your silver. Ah, he told you, said the bishop with a smile, that it had been given to him by a kind fellow of an old priest with whom he passed the night. I see what's going on here. You've brought him back. It's all a misunderstanding. In that case, replied the brigadier, we can let him go. Certainly, replied the bishop. Modern readers have a really hard time with this story because they misunderstand that Hugo's glowing portrait of the bishop, they take it as an endorsement of Christianity in general, of French Roman Catholicism in particular, but Hugo was disenchanted with both of these things. Hugo wasn't so much offering a compliment to the Christian church in his novels as much as a critique. 
in his depictions of a cathedral that gave sanctuary to a gypsy in the hunchback of Notre Dame, or ransoming the life and freedom of a thief with church silver in Les Miserables. Hugo wasn't describing what the church was doing. He was describing what the church ought to have been doing. By the time he wrote Les Miserables, he'd grown deeply disenchanted with the church, primarily over its neglect of the poor and the needy. And the church did not take his novel as an idealized account of what they were doing. Otherwise, they wouldn't have published over 700 critiques of the book shortly after it was published. What we see in Hugo's idealized accounts of Monsignor Bienvenue, Bishop Welcome, or the Sanctuary Cathedral of Notre Dame is a church that's willing to sacrifice her treasures and her holy things, the cleanliness of her house, the purity of her people, the respectability of their profession, their reputations in the public square, willing to sacrifice her treasures and her holy things for the sake of the defeated, the desperate, the poor, and the needy. As it turns out, that is a point established in our lesson from 1 Samuel, which Jesus himself will later appeal to when he puts holy things of God to work. That might be me, I don't know. It could be for dramatic effect. If it affects you dramatically, I would just roll with it. I'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 7, if you'd like to follow along. The reading begins with a young man named David. He is the anointed and future king of Israel, but that's some time off. For now, David's just a fugitive on the run. He had distinguished himself as a soldier in battle, and in doing so, he made the king, a man named Saul, jealous. And in his jealousy, Saul ordered David's assassination. Saul's son is also David's best friend. And so he warned him of his father's plans. David has no choice but to go on the run. That's where the story picks up. David went to Nov to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and said, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one's to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Nob's a small town near Jerusalem. It functioned as a hub for priestly activity. It's unclear why David would have gone there as a refugee from Saul. It's a priestly town, so he's not going to be able to acquire many weapons. It's a priestly town, so the food they have on hand would not be available to common people. It would have been donated and understood that it would be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. The reason David went there could be nothing more than the fact that this was a town on the way to another town, a border town called Gath, where David would eventually find refuge amongst the Philistines. 
who were the enemies of Saul. The enemy of my enemies, my friend. Whatever the reason, David arrives with a much smaller entourage than was usual. That's enough to put the priest on edge. It would put you on edge, wouldn't it? If the president showed up at your house at the midnight hour with just two guards, you would assume something had gone deeply wrong, whether you liked the president at the time or not. David attempts to ease the priest's nerves, and it's really important you understand how he attempted to ease the priest's nerves by lying to him. The king sent me on a secret mission. We're few and we're hungry. Can you help? The priest answered, I don't have ordinary bread. There's food on hand for people, but not for you. It's not ordinary food. It's what the King James translated as showbread, or what some recent translators have rendered bread of the presence. These are loaves of bread prepared by priests and placed within the inner part of the sanctuary on the Sabbath. And there they remained until the following Sabbath when they would be replaced. The priests are allowed to eat the bread, but... The bread is not for the priests. The priests eat the bread in the same way that the host eats a meal that he or she has prepared. But the host prepares a meal for who? The guests. In this scenario, the priests are the hosts. They're preparing a meal for their guests. Do you have any idea who their guests would be? It's not King David. It's a meal put on a table in the most intimate and holy part of the entire nation of Israel because the priests are preparing a meal for their guest who is God himself. And they'll eat this meal together. It's not lawful nor right for David and his friends to eat this bread. But after some half-hearted squabbling, the priests served David and his companions a meal that was meant for who? That was God's meal. Hard to know what to make of this. Was the priest intimidated by the small group of soldiers? He could have been. Was he secretly on their side all along? Were the rules concerning the bread not that important anyway? Like the pirate code. It's more guidelines, really. It's hard to say. What we do know is that many, many years later, Jesus was himself something of a fugitive. On the run with a small group of companions. They were also hungry, and they also did something they weren't supposed to do. On the Sabbath, a holy day of rest, where work was not permitted, Jesus and his disciples went through the grain fields, and they began to pick grain and eat it. When the religious leaders saw this, they challenged Jesus. This is what they said. Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them by appealing to David's unlawful meal. At no. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Asked Jesus. He, David, entered the house of God, and he and his companions 
ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. If it was not right for David to eat the bread, why did Jesus bring it up? Well, perhaps there are layers to what is right and lawful. Maybe there are deeper meanings to what is right and lawful. Maybe there's something more profound that had not yet been discovered by the priests and teachers of the law to the holy things like consecrated bread or sacred spaces and days. It's the African theologian and bishop of the early church, Augustine. He was commenting on this passage, and this is what he said. To refute the false accusations of the Pharisees, he, Jesus, called to mind the ancient history. David, flying from Saul, came to Nov and being entertained by Ahimelech the priest, asked for food. He, having no common bread, gave him the consecrated loaves, which it was not lawful for any to eat. But priests only and Levites, esteeming it a better action to deliver men from hunger or famine than to offer sacrifice to God. For the preservation of human life is a sacrifice acceptable to God. It is right and lawful to set aside special places, sacred spaces, we have set aside a special place here. We have set aside a sacred space here. It's right and lawful. It's right and lawful to set aside special things and objects of reverence. I prayed a blessing over one of my closest friends in the whole world over his wedding rings last night. That was good and lawful. It's good and lawful to set aside sacred days. But these special places and objects and days find a fuller and more holy use when in the presence of extraordinary hardship, their holiness is sacrificed for the preservation of human life. In all its many facets. Augustine, I don't think, would not have been able to see it had it not been for the words of Jesus who said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Humanity was not made. Humanity was not made for holy things and holy objects and holy days. God gave humanity holy things and holy objects. For them to enlarge their religious imaginations, to give them times and places to orient themselves around the life of God, and also to set aside to understand that such things are sacrificed in the presence of human need because what God cares about more than anything else in this world is you your flesh and your blood, your life, your dignity and worth and your heart. The Sabbath was made for man. It's the words of Jesus that teach us this. 
but it's the life of Jesus that puts flesh upon it. The religious purity of ancient Israel was important. It had use. But the life of Jesus teaches us he was willing to sacrifice his purity on the altar of a leper who met him on the road. For the preservation of that man's life, for his restoration to society. Not so that he could get by, but so that he could be fully restored to his community. Jesus was willing to sacrifice the holy thing of his purity. Reputations are good. I tell this to our young people at the Citadel all the time. If you are disciplined and you build a reputation, you can cash that check in 10, 20 years because you're going to need to. And if you have a good reputation, it'll actually clear the bank of human exchange. Reputations are good things. Reputations are holy things. But a reputation is something Jesus never hesitated to sacrifice on the altar of human need. How do I know that? Because I know he's at a dinner party. I know he's at a dinner party and the only people that were invited are clergy. And I know that dinner party gets crashed by who? The town prostitute. And I know the clergy person who's there, one of them says, if Jesus is who he says he is, he would never sit with that woman. And Jesus did not care what his reputation was in the presence of the enormity of the human need right in front of him, sacrificed it without hesitation. Touched her, raised her up, sent her out. Marriage is a good and holy thing, isn't it? I was reminded of that yesterday. Again, saying over one of my best friends in the whole world that marriage was given for mutual joy, for help and comfort, given one another in prosperity and adversity to maintain purity so that husbands and wives with all the household of God might serve as holy and undefiled members of the body of Christ for the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom and family, church, and society to the praise of his holy name. And in the life of Jesus, a woman is brought to him by a mob. And they say effectively to him, we think maintaining purity is important, Jesus. And we think undefiled members of the body of Christ are important, Jesus, and the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom is important in family, church, and society. We believe all these things, and we brought you this person because she's ruined it all. And we have stones so that everybody knows how seriously we take this. In his wisdom and his compassion, his willingness to put the weighty issues aside for the sake of what? For the sake of the woman right in front of him. He sends them away with their stones. And he stays with her. And she knows the touch of God Almighty. She can tell you what his eyes look like 
That's what she knows. If the world knows the stones of the church, people whose marriages have dissolved through no fault of their own, people whose marriages have been torn asunder because they were active in pulling the bricks down, people who will never have anything like this because they simply don't fit the pattern of it, if the only thing these folks know are stones, it's not because we're holy. Jesus says it's because we're hard-hearted. Not because we're holy. It's the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus that are excavating the deeper purpose behind holy things. Holy things are meant to be offered in sacrifice in the presence of extraordinary need. It's a costly sacrifice, by the way. I don't know what, I don't know if you know what happened to the priest at Nove. But our reading ends by noting there's a man there named Doeg the Edomite who goes to Saul and tells Saul what happened. Saul came to the town and he massacred the priests of Nove. And the priest died because he sacrificed the holy thing in the face of extraordinary human need. But you know, there is something more holy that was present on this earth than bread, or bishop's candlesticks, or sacred space. There is something greater than the sacred day of the Sabbath, the man Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And if I have not been able to persuade you yet that the purpose of holy things is to sacrifice them in the face of extraordinary human need, I present to you as my final piece of evidence, Jesus of Nazareth. Who is the holiest physical person or object that ever was or could be. And did not hesitate to exchange his entire self for you. It's at just the right time, says the Apostle Paul, while we were powerless, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Surely you have been in a church and seen someone set apart and raised up and prayed for. But you know secretly they're a scoundrel. They don't deserve that. I'm sure we've all seen people at the communion rail having the holy things of God put in their hand. They don't deserve that. Maybe you've seen people come in. They didn't look the right way or they didn't believe the right things and there was a bishop be envying you that welcomed them. And you might have said, if he only knew who they really were. But I want you to know that the holiness of Jesus is only and always sacrificed for people who don't deserve it. It's a holy gift that only comes into the hands of the people whose hands are dirty. 
And the people who have a personal encounter with that, if they were hard-hearted, they come to experience their heart transforming. Former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, he said, we're drifting further and further from peace. We're becoming less and less free to give. Something needs to reverse the flow to break the cycle. Fearlessness in giving has to find its place at the heart of things within the world of exchange and interaction. It's in Jesus Christ that God proves his fearlessness and generosity towards you. It can make your heart tender to become fearless in generosity towards others with your purity, with your reputation, with precious and substantial things. You can learn to be fearlessly generous. Reverence is good. Generosity is better. That's what the world needs to know from this group. The radically generous, unendingly surprising grace of God that is the only thing they need from you. All the things that we worry about will fall into place because the love of God transforms human life. Maybe you're here visiting. You're exploring Jesus. Well, I'd like to tell you one last thing. The last thing I want to tell you if you're here exploring Jesus is I want to tell you how the story of the bishop ends. The police are sent away. Jean Valjean has more silver than he had the day before. The bishop's now eating with plastic forks on paper plates. And he leans in to Jean Valjean and he says, Never forget you promised me to employ this money in becoming an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of having promised anything, stood silent. The bishop, who had laid stress on these words, continued solemnly, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but good. I bought your soul of you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition. I give it back to God. Hugo's chapter titles are always amazing. The chapter title of this one is just called The Bishop's Work. I don't know what kind of work you've been exposed to in Christian churches. I want you to know that the church's work is to participate in a sacrifice on your behalf with time and generosity and welcome. You notice that a, the bishop attributed good motives to Jean Valjean that he hadn't adopted himself. We're ready to attribute belief to you and good motives that you might not even be aware exist. And we are willing to consider you as someone who is already in the family of God, even if you don't think you could make it in the gate. And we're willing to do these things to make what we have told you about God real and tangible in your life. If you think any of that is remotely true, or even if you don't think it's true, but wish it was, a really simple thing you could do today 
is you could say, God, if this is true, I would really like to participate in it. Sounds like a bad check. But Jesus has been cashing bad checks for 2,000 years. It's his favorite kind. We will begin welcoming you today. Let us know. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you sacrificed the most precious treasure and holiest thing, your own life, in the face of the extraordinary need of our own souls. We ask that your fearless generosity would make our hearts very tender towards the world and the people in it. And we pray that the people interested in you and curious about you would receive good gifts, not just from your hands, but ours. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.